Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Jonathan. Slava. A fine evening to you. Mm. The uh, Crooked Warden bless you. May he guide your steps. May he guide your fingers to full coin purses. Yes. So we're back again. Act 2, The Lies of Locke Lamora. And I want you to let the audience know, do you have the same complaint that Spencer sent me about the book being too slow? No. No, and I think that qualifies Spencer to get kicked off the podcast. <laughs> I am insulted, and uh, I shall have my revenge. Well, you do like your revenge stories. It's interesting that you say you're insulted because Spencer and I were both insulted when you said that uh, the lies of Locke Lamora is better than the way of Kings. I'm not making an objective claim, but I certainly liked it better. I read the way of Kings and I enjoyed it, but I read it for our project. I stand by what I said about it during the episodes. Mm-hmm. But this book by far blew it out of the water for me because I could not put this down. Right. That's true. I could take a break from Way of Kings, and I did take breaks from Way of Kings when we got ahead. And then I read other stuff, some of it for the podcast to get ahead for other episodes or to refresh myself for the books that we were going to be covering afterwards, or just for grins because I wanted to read something else. But I took a break from the Way of Kings. I did not take a break from The Lies of Locke Lamora. Mm-hmm. See, and I knew that you'd love this book. And so on the front end, I was trying to plan with Slava, like, hey, can we like bump these episodes up because we want to have Spencer on again as our guest episode. But, you know, this book is very well laid out in a four act structure. And so that leads into four episodes plus a guest episode and was trying to explain to him via text, like, hey, let's do a few early episode recordings, make sure we can get Spencer on before he starts his uh, his like career training thing that he's going to do for few months mm-hmm. um and slava gave kickback he's like well i mean do we need a guest episode like and this was it when he was in act one this is before he understood how much he was gonna love it and i was like why don't you just you keep reading the book a little bit and then we'll work out the details here and then one day he's like yeah i'm in the middle of act two uh which was when we recorded the first episode and then three days later he finished the book and i was like well that's one way to do it yeah, you could say that I pissed myself happy reading the second half of Act 2. Yeah, that's what you want to commit to here? That's the phrase? Last week, the shtick was the horse urine, so I figured I'd pigtail it, dovetail it, whatever. Always with the tails with you. Horsetail. Mm-hmm. Horsetail it. Anyway, uh, you know what time it is, you salty adventurers. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss a side quest, because otherwise you'll miss out on all of the great books that I recommend to Slava today on side quest. I thought for sure you were going to call the audience bastards. You unruly bastards. Hit that subscribe you button. You gentlemen bastards. 
Hey, we got a couple of ladies in the audience. Look, the metrics tells us so. Metrics don't lie. Sabatha is part of the Gentleman Bastards. Fair. Right. Let's do a quick recap, Slava, of some of your favorite quotes from Act 1 before we move into Act 2. How yes. about that? So I wrote some down, and one of them that I thought was really interesting, kind of sets the tone for, was by the Thief Maker. And in the prologue, he says, I've got kids that enjoy stealing. I've got kids that don't think about stealing one way or another. And I've got kids that just tolerate stealing because they know they've got nothing else to do. But nobody, and I mean nobody, has ever been hungry for it like this boy, meaning Locke. If he had a bloody gash across his throat and a fizzier was trying to sew it up, Lamora would steal the needle and thread and die laughing. He steals too much. So this statement, it's almost like a thesis statement on Locke Lamora, right? At approximately, what, six, seven, he's here? Yeah. This is the first character sketch we get of Locke, and we see in the rest of the book how much Locke really likes his gig. <laughs> he is committed. Life for most Kamori citizens is violent and gory, and you either make it or don't. And I think Locke is one of those people that, yeah, he enjoys it. It's a necessity, and he enjoys it. Let me put it that way. What do you think about the fact that like this is a this is a pretty unique character right like okay it's a heist book okay he's a thief and then you, and then like lynch is like what if he's like on a scale of 1 to 10 he's a 25 like he's just too good at it lock steals so much that he breaks all of the underwritten rules that the guards have with the thief maker that the thief maker has with the nobility that the nobility have with the thieves like the secret piece, Locke's like, nah, I'm just going to steal. Completely. Always and forever, his hands are moving, or the next heist is rolling. Yeah, and he walks into each one without much of a plan. No. Now, some of the stuff he plans out yeah. very much in detail. He's 10 steps ahead. Mm -hmm. Some stuff he walks into just f all. Let's get this done, right? Flip side of that coin and I think we'll get into it a little bit later, the flip side of that coin is he's still unassuming or presents himself as unassuming yes. very well. So yes. one of the many lies of Locke Lamora, <laughs> and that's something that Father Chains taught them. Chains used to claim that there is no freedom quite like the freedom of being constantly underestimated. And I think he taught the bastards well. Yeah, he did. They certainly are underestimated. Yes. Um. One of my quotes from the Lies of Locke Lamore that I like is when they're all getting together to have dinner, it goes something like this. I think I'm missing some spots, but it's perfect. Locke would appreciate it. Bug, Kahlo said, Locke is our brother, and our love for him knows no bounds. But the four most fatal words in the Theron language are Locke would appreciate it. Rivaled only by Locke taught me a new trick, added Gallo. The only person who gets away with Locke Lamora games is Locke, because we think the gods are saving him up for a really big death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, the knife, something with knives and hot irons and 50,000 cheering spectators. I like it. I really like it. Uh, even, even the people that he is closest to know that there's something unique and special 
about Locke. And that speaks to something. And I think it'd be crazy if this was like a foreshadowing for somewhere in book seven where Locke finally gets his comeuppets or almost gets his comeuppets with knives and hot irons with 50,000 cheering spectators. I'd read that book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you would. Yeah, 100%. Another one that I like is uh, I just love Father Chains to me feels like Orthos. If Orthos wasn't a turtle and was instead a... A thief. A thief, yeah. He's like, when you don't know everything that you could know, it's a fine time to shut your f***ing noisemaker and be polite. Oh, Chains. Yeah, I like Chains a lot. I really wish he was along for the ride longer. But I think that kind of, that's what makes a story interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, if you kill off a good character early, yeah, I fear it would be very cliche if Chains was on the other end of the world and when Locke and John leave the city at the end of the book, they meet up with Chains and they're like, oh, Father Chains, everything you've taught us, we've used it, and you are 100% right. That would be Barf City. Mm-hmm. All right, give me another quote from uh, from the earlier parts of the book. Such audacity could never be faked. Locke had to feel it, summon it from somewhere inside, cloak himself in arrogance as though it were an old familiar garment. Locke Lamora became a shadow in his own mind. He was a midnighter, an officer of the Duke's Island Constabulary. Locke's complicated lies were this new man's simple truth. Mm. What a good quote. Locke's complicated lies were this new man's simple truth. Oh, yeah. It's such a great sentence. Locke is lying, but he has this identity mm-hmm. that he takes on, and he folds lies upon lies upon lies for survival, and you guessed it, for thievery. <laughs> and then, of course, last but not least, just for the thrill of it. And here we're told, in no uncertain terms, Locke must believe his own lies to make other people believe them too. Yeah. That's kind of part of the con. That's hundred percent a timeless truth, if you will, for, for this world and for these people, right? So the simile here, which I find fascinating, that compares his arrogance to an old familiar garment, which is a setup for, I think, what happens in book two, but everything he used to create these lies and create these persona eventually get destroyed but right now in this part of the story this is all very good and familiar and comforting for him in in his mind right this this is the way it's supposed to be this is what he has to do not only to survive but to also find that thrill yeah what do you think about the fact that um i think it's the same scene where they are about to have dinner they throw their winnings if you can call them that their bounty into their three different piles of just absolute cash and chains never taught them to do something with it he taught them to steal really well but no sort of bigger plan i think chains died before they could continue the training or their growth yeah they know how to steal they know how to get away with it they steal really well the cons are pretty elaborate. They they execute them well. And it's not necessarily that they don't know what to do with it. Although that's kind of alluded to. But also, what are they going to do with it? 
they're you know chance is probably freshly gone a couple of years mm-hmm. and they eat well they dress well they have fun mm-hmm. they spend exorbitant amounts of money on all sorts of things whether it's to set up another con whether it's to buy fancy clothes whether it's to eat whether it's to visit the brothel they the gilded lilies yeah they spend the money but are they spending it in a way that you would expect a thief of their caliber to no and that is probably because they don't know what, what to do with it. And at the end of the day, they don't need to do anything with it. They steal so much that even living a good life, they still have a exorbitant amount left over. They still have a surplus. I They're not living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Well, in some ways they are because they can't spend it the way that they'd want to. Right. They can't spend a lot of it because they'll bring suspicions from Barsavi. Yeah. So I, I read somewhere on, it was probably a Reddit or somebody, somebody equated like one piece of white iron is like $1,000 and they had 40,000 pieces and it's like $70 million or something like that or $700 million. Yeah, I saw something like that too, yeah. 40,000 pieces of white iron. Yeah, it's like $70 million or something. Just like sitting, just sitting in their temple in a secret spot, just chilling. Well, aside from the stealing, the all the money that was donated while Chains was alive. So this is not just them stealing and stealing well. There's just a surplus. Well, they've been sitting. People aren't, people aren't donating that much to Paralandro. Like, no, I can't imagine it being a lot, but every little bit counts. Yeah, but they're not. But here's the thing: you got to keep that money separate because if someone comes to check out the you know Temple of Paralandro. You need to have some sort of coffers in the back of like, oh, yes, this is what we've collected. Yeah, you know? I suppose so. You got to keep up yeah. the ruse, you know? That makes sense. I want to throw another another quote that I liked here from Chains. There are only three people in life you can never fool. Pawnbrokers, whores, and your mother. And since your mother's dead, I've taken her place. Hence, I'm bullshit proof. It's a good one. I remember that one. Now, talk to me about, um, you've got one more, it's not a quote necessarily, but just like you have a thought here on early lock, right? Did you mention this already? I kind of alluded to, that was kind of the thought that flowed from the quote from the thief maker, and then this kid, Locke, really loves stealing. So the thought is, he doesn't disguise himself as fair white, for example, you know, now coming to present time within the story, because he must for the reason we just mentioned, plenty of money, but because he thoroughly enjoys it. Makes sense. I think it's interesting. It goes to your point earlier, too, of just like he has to believe his own lies. And that makes me think like when we believe our own lies in life, we tend to feel more confident because it's a grounding. It's a, I think grounding is just the best term for it, actually. I think we ground ourselves in like this is a belief, this is a truth lowercase t in our lives about me period whether that's and usually it's a negative thing right like well i have adhd i have this thing i can't read well i don't do math properly and it's just like we're so grounded in it it doesn't mean that that isn't true but it does mean that you are bolstering that fact that thing about your life and you believe it so strongly that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that if someone held a gun to your head, you would get out, you would get over it. You'd grow out of that negative thing. But Locke uses it to his benefit where he's like, no, I am Lucas Fairwhite. 
and he like becomes this person, which I think would be an interesting superpower if this like went to the next level of superpowers instead of just like really good acting. It'd be an interesting X-Men. I'd imagine he'd be with Magneto's side. Just because it has more entertainment. Yeah. And quite honestly, I'll, I'll show my cards. I find Magneto's character more compelling than... Professor X. Professor X. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Anyway, let's roll, let's roll into Act 2 here. And, and you were so excited last episode, so why don't you give us a quick uh, hasharoo of all of the, the wild highlights that you have from Act 2. It's part of the ruse that the gentlemen bastards have to uh, play, and they they take a bunch of just tchotchkes and sell them at a pawn shop because they don't want Barsavi to know about the extent of their crime or <laughs> the exorbitant amount of riches they have, right? And the fact that they uh, regularly break the secret peace because, hey, if you have iron coins or what are they called? Copper coins, white gold coins. White iron. Which means you are stealing from the rich. And that's a big no-no in Camorra. People died, so that peace would be brokered. And Locke just wantonly, without abandon, <laughs> breaks it on the daily. All day, every day. When they come out of uh, the pawn shop giggling to themselves, being content what they've done, it's kind of... A daily occurrence for Locke. He just constantly pushes the boundaries. What boundaries? Right. But at the same time, he's an enigma, right? We know so much about Locke. We can kind of read him like a book. But there's still a mystery to him. We don't know his real name. His origins are still clouded. Questionable. We don't know exactly where he came from, where the thief maker found him. By which road did he come across a thief maker? At that level, it's impossible to truly know him. And he also lies constantly. That's true. I'll tell you, as someone who's read all three books a few times, you'll get some answers, but because we only have three books, you will not get nearly enough answers to satisfy. Frankly, it's almost like torture to get the the question answers that we get throughout the next two books to know more about him, particularly end of book three. So, yeah. I'm okay with that. The only torture here is uh, you, my poor brother, in in podcasting, is you are tortured. I might want to know some things, but I think he's an interesting enough character as a mysterious thief. No, 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 no. This is not like, oh, we don't know enough about him. It's like, no, you haven't. You have, you either have a wild red herring that connects with book one, or you have the truth, which might be scarier. But the thing is, you don't Mm. have any validation on that. And so that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking like, oh, I want to know more about this character. No, you're given information that you have. No idea if it's true or it's not true because it's told by a specific entity and it leaves you with like, is that person telling the truth? They don't really have a reason to lie. Why are they telling the truth? What? 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 And then you're like, where's the next book? Okay. This isn't a cliffhanger in the sense of what you're talking about. I still say I'd be okay with that now. Well, we'll find out because you're like, what, halfway through book two right now? Almost. Jerk. I'm going to say... 
I'm okay with that because nine out of 10 times, I'm okay with that. But we'll see if this is going to be that one out of 10 time. We'll see when we get to this point in the book. As I have predicted that you would love this book, you will get to that part and then you'll go, well, this is bullshit. All right. Well, if I, if I text you from an iPhone that has a cracked screen, that's because I got to that part and threw my, my phone across the room. Right, right. Anyway, sorry. That's just a teaser about books two and three. Let's get back to act two because we haven't even gotten that far. So that's that's on me. Locke himself is an enigma and um, that's not going anywhere anytime soon. What little we know of him, he's consistent. He's cocky. He's arrogant. He does crazy things <laughs> for no reason other than to prove that he can. He's pretty audacious. Mm-hmm. He's He can definitely be a little petulant and, you know, maybe maybe moody. Uh, if you can be both at the same time. Oh, 100%. Uh, which you can. Which you can. Yeah, yeah. He's super moody. And then he sees himself a class apart from everybody else. Even though he loves his gentleman bastards, he never treats them this way. But you can tell the, the rest of the people outside the, the temple, mm-hmm. they can go. They can all go pawn salt if Locke, if Locke has anything to say about it. Yeah. So let, speaking about his consistency... There's something that he's really consistent about that even his brothers in arms are like, can you just get over this already? Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> the unrequited uh, love of... Go uh, visit the Gilded Lilies and just pound salt there. Dude, like that... That was so annoying reading that. It's like, so you've bought a woman for the night. Now, we're going to forego any moral observation so it's a different world this is the watsonian and the doyleist thing mm-hmm. we're, we're we're in the world this is a watsonian observation not a doyleist mm-hmm. observation <laughs> so you've bought a girl you, you you've bought her time let's put it let's make it a little bit more palatable you bought her time she seems to be into you beyond the money you're paying her and you're like but this girl across the way across the white iron well not white it's not white iron hold on let me yeah, the White Iron Sea, or the Sea of Brass, whatever the hell this girl is. She uh-huh. could be just d- down the coast. But he's pining and pining. And this is like he's a Achilles heel, I guess? Is, is this what it is? Certainly one of them. Here's the thing, though. As much as it's cringy, this is a real emotion that people have. Sure, yeah. Look, it's part of my story. You were there. Names can be omitted for, for whatever, but like... For legal purposes. For legal purposes. I was a wounded soul with unrequited love for a person that I chased across the nation. I get it. It doesn't mean it's fun to be around, but I understand where he's coming from. And also the being around the friends where they're like, hey, just go find someone else. Now, in the real world, it looks a little different than, you know, visiting the Gilded Lilies. But the premise is the same, right? You need to just go put the numbers in and go out and <laughs> and do things. Even in, in the, the, the world we live in, people are like, just go have a one-night stand. Get over it, right? Like, this is a common thing that people say and do. Yeah, absolutely. Is This is a real emotion for Locke. This is probably, not probably, this is an Achilles heel for him. This girl, whatever she's done, she could be the purest of maidens who happens to be a thief, or she could be a complete psychopath. Sounds like the latter, really. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. And I understand the setup. Uh, I'm not even mad. I don't think it's cliche. I'm not poo-pooing the writing. But 
just as a natural reaction from a reader, like, oh my gosh. Right. You're sitting next to a girl who's, mm-hmm. by all accounts, very pretty. A redhead, his favorite type, you know, we can just assume that she's bearing herself before the moon, if we can call it that. Yes. There's moons in the wild, yes. And me, I'm like, what is going on? Because I know Locke for the past 200 pages or whatever, right? No, a little bit more. A little bit more like 300 pages. But he's very confident, and he's very good at what he does, and he knows he's very good at what he does, and he does more than one thing well. It's not just picking pockets. You have to be patient and methodical to come up with the the schemes that he comes up, the cons that he comes up. And yet here is this thing that is kind of, uh, has him a little, I don't want to say broken, but has him kind of wound up or, you know, in a vulnerable place and he is not himself. It's his emotional ball and chain, not just because it's a woman, but like, no, it's a thing that he can't get over. It could be anything. Yeah. It happens to be a, a woman and it happens to be unrequited love and whatever. I'm not making a cl- any statement about that, but the fact that there's just one thing that Locke can't really handle, the way he can handle the Grey King or walking into that tower and telling everybody then in the book, like, hey, this has been a trap. You all got to leave. You're all going to die. Yeah. Irrespective of the other stuff. When I saw that, I was like, oh, really? This is going to be the thing now? Well, every protagonist needs to have some sort of thorn in their side. Uh-huh. Thorn. There you go. Well played. I, I was going to say Gildan is Lily, but uh, I didn't feel like well, that's you sexual. Would... It's meant to be. Yes. So being the thorn of Kimura, he has his own, which is uh, apparently a redhead literally down the coast from him or wherever she bended up. So wherever she is. We get to meet yeah. more of Sabatha in book two. Okay. So. Is Locke going to turn into a blubbering idiot in front of her? Depends. And your definition of blubbering an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Okay, all right. Mine are pretty pretty st- standard definitions of both. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Okay. So what do you think about the, the plot? Let's talk about the plot for a minute, right? Like, the things that are going on is there's this mysterious character called the Great King, and he's, like, coming to town, killing the garistas of Capa Barsave. What is going on here? Like, the ante is being upped, and Locke and the gentleman bastards are, for the most part, trying to keep out of it. But once they hear about the fact that the Grey King is slaughtering Garistas, they're kind of involved. Like, they pay tribute to Capa Versave. We see them going with the boat to go to the peddler to, like, turn in their their tribute, if you will. And they hear about a guy who got his balls chopped off and drained of blood. And now Kappa Persave is staying in a secret side of the town. Um, remind me what it's called again. The Raven's Reach or something like that. Something like that. So he's in hiding and his daughter's there. And Wait, Barsave? No, Barsave's on the floating grave. No, that's not Barsave. Yeah, the... The floating grave, this ship where he's hiding. Oh, his sorry. Sorry. Yeah, the floating grave. I was thinking of the boat. Yes, the floating grave. That's what it's called. So he's he's over there, locked himself in, not going out. And the Grey King hasn't made any demands yet. But he also underestimates the Grey King throughout this whole ordeal. Oh, yeah. And at this point, he doesn't even 
think it's the Grey King. He thinks it's uh, the Garish just killing off each other. That's why he's killing everybody in that guy who got his boss cut off. Everybody who looked at him that night is getting their head bashed in and thrown into the water mm-hmm. because uh, he thinks one of them knows something or has done something. And even though the Grey King is mentioned, he's not the prime suspect. Barsavi thinks his garistas are somehow involved in this nonsense. Right. But none of them are talking and all of them have their memories wiped, basically. Yeah, because of the Bonds Mage. Yeah, so Garistas are getting murdered and Barsavi's going nuts. And what does he command Locke to do for him? To marry his daughter, which, hey, they seem to kind of like each other, and Nazca's a pretty badass chick. I think maybe she would, in the right circumstance, do this, whether it's for her father or for because she has true feelings for Locke. But no girl wants a guy who's simping for somebody across uh, the pond. Can confirm, just from research that I've done. Right, right, that blog that you read. Yeah, no, the research, yeah, yeah, well, thanks. The field research. Yes, I'm a regular anthropologist. Uh, There you go. In the ways of love, or lack thereof. Well, we all got our part to play. In this story we call life. Thanks? Question mark? Uh, you know what I mean. What, what part are you playing? I don't know. I'm I'm playing me. Mm-hmm. So, did you see any part of this plot coming? Was it all a surprise? Somewhere in the middle, leading a couple of notches towards, saw it coming. Because I called a lot of the stuff that happened. And if we work backwards, I called the Grey King betraying Locke. I called the death of the twins. And what else did I call? What else did I text you? I feel like I called something else. I called like four things, which is a lot in a book this short, even though it's not that short of a book. Right, right. But that didn't take away from uh, my enjoyment in the slightest. Because when I figured out, I'm like, oh, the Grey King is going to betray Locke, I'm like, holy crap, that is awesome. That's a cool twist, right? Again, I want to underscore this. That did not take away from me enjoying the book at all. Still a good plot. Just because I can call it means nothing more than I've read a lot of books. And I'm an amateur, lazy writer that never does anything except think about writing. Fair enough. I have that little bit of whatever you call it, that that little muscle that works. So I can think like a writer sometimes. And when I'm really into a story and I'm trying to dissect it, it's easy to call this kind of stuff, I think. As they go from act one to act four, from prelude to epilogue. That's for sure. I know X is going to happen because what else is there supposed to happen? Well, there's also only a limited number of options, right? Like even though writing a book is super creative, at some juncture, you either keep your characters alive or you kill them. That's a dichotomy. I mean, you could handicap them. I guess that's a third option that happens to some characters in books that we've read. So twins die, bug dies. Maybe, maybe Jean dies. Maybe Locke is left all by himself. But you're right. There's only so many places you can go. But in a book such as this, meaning it's at 11. You start out at the dial being 11. Me, as Slava, trying to analyze it, I'm thinking, well, what else is going to happen? Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. all live. Some of the bastards are going to have to die. Yep. Act two, when the Grey King proposes his bullshit, I knew somebody's going to die. I'm waiting for somebody's death. 
And what's a good ante? Well, death. Death is a good ante. The loss of freedom, having to go back into that tower for Locke and, you know, Act 4. And then you have to consider, this is not just for grins, right? Like, Scott Lynch is telling a story. There has to be. There are just some rules that have to be followed. There has to be character growth. There has to be some sort of progression of story that is not just insanity for 400 pages. Right. Well, what do you think about the fact that he continues to do snippets of world building? And I'm thinking about Jean in particular, where, you know, they get some really great training, but we have these like interludes where, okay, you know, Jean and Locke in the past, and then Jean being sent to the special tower to learn how to fight, and then Jean going out and becoming a priest of Sagura? The woman of the night or river or something. Yeah, the woman of silence. Yeah, there you go. Mistress of silence, which is like the death god in this world, which is interesting because they worship the 13th god that a bunch of people don't believe in, but also know about. So it doesn't stop. Like the world keeps being built mm-hmm. and it's it's really just giving you like enough information at the right time and then the thing happens, right? Instead of, you know, giving you a download on the front end, he cuts it into snippets and vignettes and then distributes it throughout the story. Yes. And a funny little side quest. So when I first, when I was about halfway through act one, I told you, man, I wish I could have more luck. I'd read the whole book if it was just Young little luck. Yep. Young luck. And then in the middle of his uh, fairway con, it goes back to an interlude. And now we're going to talk about John in the garden. I was like, dude, there's so much going on. And then you're right. You go back into the interlude and you're like, wait, 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 wait. At least me, Slava. Wait, wait. I want to know what Locke was doing. Then you then you get two seconds, well, two seconds. Then you get two minutes into the interlude. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Now it sets up something else. It gives you a glimpse into why Locke is doing what he's doing, whether it's in the portion that the interlude interrupted or somewhere before that or even somewhere after that. As you get these snippets, vignettes, but then in the book, you're like, oh, okay. Here's a full story of... You know, the mysterious and conniving Locke Lamora and his brother Jean. Yeah. So, all that to say, plot's good, well executed. I think few writers can hit it out of the ball, hit the ball. Can play with their balls. Can play with their balls and get away with it. I think think few writers can get their balls chopped off and drained of... Of all their creative juices and still write a good book. Um, No, I think few... Writers can do this well throughout the whole book. To keep the dial at 11 for, what, 400 pages? That's a that's a talent. But let's talk about something else now. I think we've got the plot covered really well. Another quote that I wrote, and we're going to come back to it at the end of the book when we cover uh, Act 4, and this just shows you the bond that John and Locke have right away after their little uh the little misunderstanding they have when they meet each other they have a they have a tussle it's a well, tussle they have a tussle but uh, you know that is what it is i'm going to call it a misunderstanding uh, then they work it out pretty quickly but the guy who's beating Locke up on the docks yeah when they were kids 
Locke goes completely psycho and ties himself to this kid. And the kid begins to lose his mind, starts almost kills Locke. And what I love, and he he says, I don't have to fight you. I don't have to win. I just have to keep you here until John gets back. Yeah. And I think that is such a beautiful growth spurt for Locke as a character and for the, him and John as friends. Because oftentimes, as kids at least, and as boys, you do get in the tussle. You you hate somebody, and you then you fight it out with words or fists. Then then you're the best of friends. Then you're inseparable throughout your whole life. Mm-hmm. I've known stories like that. I've had friends like that. I remember this Vietnamese kid. I hated his guts in eighth grade for whatever reason. We just didn't get along because he was I was Locke. Only Flock was a you know a nerd that got picked on every day, but I was Locke because we've covered my fu right. attitude in life. Well, yeah, yeah. And this kid was put together. He was calm and collected, oil and water, and we we had words. We didn't have we didn't throw hands. We had words, but afterwards, him and I and his two other friends, the three of us for the rest of the. The school year were inseparable. So this happens, whether it's gentlemen bastards or real life. I think Lynch captures this part of a little boy's lives really well. And this continues throughout the story, right? And this is kind of like the paradigm that's set up, if you will. Maybe that's not the right word. But this setup, this is set up really well for their relationship. Yeah. Tesso. Tesso, the guy's name is Tesso. I still forget his uh, gang name, but Tesso is trying to beat him up. And I think it sets up the relationship in, the, in another way that I just said. Locke needs John. And even though Locke is a cocky bastard and he thinks he doesn't need anybody, without even knowing it, he already acquiesces to this idea, assents to this idea that he needs his gentleman bastards because he does treat him like brothers even before his character growth. But Locke really needs John. And John needs Locke. Because Absolutely. They, they couldn't do what they do without each other. And we, we see that in the early flashback when Jean is like first night there, second night there, and Locke gets sent to his room without dinner because Jean could figure out arithmetic and Locke was an idiot. He's still an idiot, but. Yeah, he's know. still an idiot. But this is how friendships work, right? Um, even as children. Like, these two are a bonded pair. But friendship, we talked about this in a previous episode with Spencer on for Black Flame, um, Black Flame Part 3. Like, what makes a good friendship? And we mentioned that it's... Oh, that was a good episode. That was a very good episode. We mentioned, I mentioned, and you all agreed, so we're going to go with we mentioned. <laughs> and here's what we came up with. The ability to be free, to be able to trust them and they trust you, to be able to establish trust, and a sense of loyalty that you are truly bonded somehow. It doesn't have to be John and Locke, but there's some sense of loyalty that, hey, this is Jonathan. I owe him X because of what we've been through together and the way that normal people interact and the fact that there is more than just your normal relationship here it's actually a friendship 
that's you know decades old almost uh definitely over a decade over a decade i owe him x and it's okay for me to expect y from him or x from him so that's what we covered in black flame and i think to add to it is to understand what we just covered just you know a minute and 30 seconds ago that they both need each other to understand that hey it's okay that Jonathan is good at this and Slava is good at this. So axe fighting and, you know, elaborate schemes for Locke and John, whatever those two things are for us. And even as specific as this podcast, we went over a little bit of that when uh, we did the 50th episode. Indeed. We did, you know, Hey, what are you, we, we, we did the reverse. What are you not good at? Let's give each other feedback. Yeah. So, but it kind of got into our strengths. Right. But you are a better performer than I am. Fair. If I was ever an actor, I would play myself in every role. I could act. I could probably perform and do all the things that's necessary to play a scene. But I would be me in every single scene. Mm -hmm. I'd be Slava sad. I'd be Slava angry. I'd be (laughs) Slava confused. Kappa Barslava. Kappa Barslava. But because of my eight years of seminary training, I can do research on a academic level, which helps bring in so much information that I will contest. It helps the podcast episodes be more full than just two guys yammering on about their feelings about a book, where we can actually take a point in the author's life, a point in the book as in like, here's what the book is trying to say. Here's where the book uh stems from as far as what was in the author's head or the themes that, you know, two or three people who are smarter than us who read books for a living and analyze them have said, and then we dissect those things. So you bring the performance part of it, I bring the back-end research part of it, and that's what makes the thing interesting, in my opinion. Slava's always looking at the back-end, trying to be bent over on the back-end. Yes. Um, don't do that. Just uh, Just perform. And I'll be okay. I will give it my best performance. Excellent. All right. Well, let's um, let's land this plane because we've got a couple more episodes here on the lives of Locke Lamora as things continue to heat up act after act. Scott Lynch does such a great job at turning up the heat for our companions, our gentlemen bastards in each of the acts. Sure. And one thing we didn't mention, and I really wanted to mention, and I was I was playing with it, and it was shtick in the first act, but I wanted to touch upon it. Nazca bring, being brought back to her father in horse urine, that is just such a thing out of left field. The fact that Scott Lynch killed off Nazca, and the fact that he set up the Grey King to be this grand old douchebag with a psychopathic side to like no other. You want to get somebody's attention? Fine. Put a bolt through his daughter's face. Okay, that that's sick in itself. But he poisons her and puts her in horse urine and gives her to dad to get a reaction. And then, obviously, this is one of the things I didn't call. There's no foreshadowing for it. You can't call everything. Yeah, there's no foreshadowing for it. But holy crap, man. Like, that, that was uh, dark. You said it yourself earlier. Like, Lynch doesn't pull any punches. The The streets of Kimura are depraved. And so let them 
eat cake, if you will. Let them be depraved. Yeah, that's all I wanted to say. I know I, I tried to set it up in the first episode as, haha, horse urine, but it was really dark. There was no cop-out. Not that killing somebody's daughter is a cop-out, but it felt right. It's in character, and it's in world. So let's leave it there. Perfect. Performing. Performance. Indeed. Uh, all right, folks, you know what to do. Smash that subscribe button so you never miss a podcast here on SideQuest.